Some exciting news and just a quick note before we begin. We were recently nominated for a podcast award. If you're enjoying the show, I would appreciate it if you vote for us on the 14th Annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. To vote for us, please visit www.podcastawards.com and click the blue button that says Nominations Now Open. You'll need to create a quick account, but once in, select History of the Marine Corps from the drop-down on two locations. The first is under the Adam Curry People's Choice Award, and the second drop-down is in Society and Culture. Once those two are selected, hit Save Nominations and that's it. We really appreciate your help. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 17 of History of the Marine Corps, the Marine you never heard of and the Americans surrender their first ship. Last week's episode focused mostly on Cadwalder and his forces, which include the Marines attached to his command. They faced multiple challenges in New Jersey, some of which included muddy trails, cold weather, and lack of food. We discussed the battle at Assunpink Bridge, which one soldier stated looked red as blood after the battle. This week, the Marines move away from General Washington and his forces to go back to their roots on board Navy vessels. We take a look at one Marine you probably never heard of before, Lieutenant John Trebit. Although he isn't well known, Trebit played a big role in the American Revolution, and we will be reviewing his accomplishments in this episode and future episodes. We also take a look at the first ship to lower its colors and surrender to the British. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Lieutenant John Trevitt was born in 1747 at Newport, Rhode Island to Eliasar and Mary Trevitt. In November 1775, after the Continental Navy and Marines were established, Trevitt embarked on the American sloop the Katie for a voyage from Rhode Island to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There are some accounts and documents showing John Trevitt serving in the merchant service before his military sea service began. His prior experience at sea might have given him an upper hand on board the sloop, and he was commissioned as a midshipman as soon as they arrived in Philadelphia's port. The name of the ship changed as well, and the Katie would now be called the Providence. When Commodore Hopkins sent his fleet, which included the sloop, back to New Providence, Trevitt was commissioned as a first lieutenant in the Marines. Lieutenant Trevitt is one of those Marines most people haven't heard of. He's not talked about in boot camp, and he doesn't have any groundbreaking firsts. However, Trevitt played a substantial role in a few battles against the British. He was pivotal in the raid of the Bahamas, and he helped secure a victory with minimal losses. He served on the Andrew Doria and helped seize multiple British vessels for use by the Continental Navy. He was one of the few Marines present for Thomas Mifflin's Town Square reading of the Declaration of Independence on July 6, 1776. He also participated in important James Bond-like spying missions, where he and some of his men would disguise themselves and board British vessels to gather useful intelligence. And Trevitt negotiated prisoner releases for Marines captured by the British. To top it all off, this guy was tough as nails, and he immediately volunteered for service upon the frigate Dean after losing his right eye and had an injured right foot. In reality, 
Trevitt is probably one of thousands of Marines throughout history who deserve recognition and are relatively unknown. As we progress through our series, we'll try to highlight some of these Marines. If you have any suggestions or recommendations, please feel free to send them our way. After taking a month of leave, Trevitt revisited Providence to find the ship stocked and ready to head out to sea. His family recently had to escape their home in Newport due to the advancing British, and Trevitt was pretty motivated to attack the British due to the displacement of his family and quickly took his post on board the Providence. While he was settling in, intelligence came in about the HMS Diamond, a British frigate, that was grounded near Warwick Neck. Capturing British ships and reassigning them to service in the Continental Navy was common, and a frigate would be extremely valuable. Trevitt realized this opportunity, and he voiced his opinion on advancing towards the diamond so that Americans could capture and use this valuable prize. Commodore Isaac Hopkins agreed with Trevitt, and he saw this as an opportunity to minimize the British dominion over his fleet, as well as a chance to correct his previous mistake of letting the HMS Glasgow escape which we talked about in episode 13. This was an opportunity for everyone to shine. It was low tide, so to avoid the Continental Navy's frigates from succumbing to the same fate as the HMS Diamond, Hopkins sent the sloop Providence to investigate. Captain Abraham Whipple commanded the Providence, and a select crew were nominated to assist, which included Lieutenant Trevitt. On January 2nd, the Providence spotted the HMS Diamond. The ship was still grounded, and Captain Whipple made several close passes to check out the current situation. Whipple and his crew advanced between 100 to 300 meters from the HMS Diamond, and used this opportunity to fire a few musket rounds at the British. The British reacted by firing their chase guns at the American sloop. The Americans received reinforcements on shore, and two artillery pieces were brought in to help with the attack. By dusk, the diamond had stopped firing and was now on its side. However, the Providence continued to fire at the ship for a few more hours. They stopped at night, and only stopped due to the darkness making it challenging to sight in the cannons. When firing ceased, Commodore Hopkins made a trip to shore so he could discuss next steps with the artillery commander. Hopkins ended up spending the night on land, and while he was away, the HMS Diamond managed to set herself free with the incoming tide. Even though she had taken a lot of damage, her sides were pierced several times and her rigging damaged, her crew was not harmed and the ship was still maneuverable. The HMS Diamond was able to escape and Commodore Hopkins didn't have his opportunity to atone for his similar mistakes of letting the Glasgow escape. Shortly after Hopkins failed to capture the Diamond, a petition was sent to Robert Treat Payne who was part of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. The petition accused Commodore Hopkins of blasphemy against God, Continental Congress, inhumane treatment of prisoners, and how poorly he handled the capture of the diamond. One of the men who signed the petition was Marine Captain John Granis. Granis was the spokesman for the crew, and he brought this petition to the Marine Committee on March 26th. They resolved that Isaac Hopkins immediately be suspended from his command in the American Navy. It took about a year, but Isaac Hopkins would formally be dismissed from Continental Service. While Congress was dealing with Isaac Hopkins, they still had the problem of needing a functional Navy to challenge the British. Congress ordered Captain John Hopkins, K. 
Captain Abraham Whipple, and Captain Dudley Saltonstall to take their frigates to sea and search out British merchantmen and transport vessels. However, due to the British's fleet hanging out on the Connecticut River, the frigates would not move for most of the year. In fact, there were a total of seven American ships docked in harbors and the Providence was the only one able to leave the harbor. Shortly after its confrontation with the Diamond, command of the Providence was transferred to Lieutenant Jonathan Pitcher and he was able to sneak by the British ships in February in the middle of the night. Accounts from men on board the ship stated that they passed so closely to the enemy that they could hear the enemy having a conversation. They left with the light crew, but Lieutenant Pitcher was able to sneak past the British, make their way to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and recruit sailors to serve on board the vessel. Now fully staffed, which includes Lieutenant Trevor and his Marines, the Providence headed out to sea and headed towards Canada. The British had soldiers and supplies heading for Quebec. The Providence wanted to cut them off at their pass, and they headed towards Cape Breton to stop the enemy. The ships met, and they engaged in an hour of intense battle, but eventually, the British ship would surrender and Pitcher would send Lieutenant Trevitt to take control of the enemy ship. When Trevitt boarded, he discovered the damage the ship and her men have taken. He stated that so many wounded men were laid out in the cabins that he had a hard time finding a place to put his foot down as he walked throughout the ship. The Providence was in bad shape as well, and the ship took heavy damage from the hour of intense fighting. Lieutenant Pitcher wasn't in better shape, and he took some serious injuries too. Trevitt transferred British prisoners to the Providence and assigned a prize crew to the British vessel. The Providence would sail to Nantucket, where Pitcher would receive the medical attention he deserved, and he was replaced with Captain John Peck Rathbun. The Providence would again head out to sea with the mission of capturing British vessels. It would engage in a few fights before being ordered back to port for repairs in August. In November, the Providence would again head out to sea. Not much happened during the month of November, and Rathbun decided to head for Charleston to dock. As he was heading to Charleston, a British privateer was spotted. The British opened fire at the Providence and the Americans spent the night chasing the British ship. The Providence was able to catch up to the enemy and got so close that an enemy sniper was able to shoot at the Providence from their roundhouse. However, their sniper fire didn't last long and Marines had another opportunity to shine. Lieutenant Trevitt and Lieutenant Michael Moulton picked up muskets and fired back at the sniper. Keep in mind the challenges the sniper and the Marines were facing here. Muskets weren't known for their accuracy, and it was difficult to get a well-placed intentional shot. They were also dealing with the complications of firing on board a moving ship towards another moving ship. Even with all those challenges, only after three shots, the Marines were able to kill the sniper. The British ship would eventually surrender and Americans would board the vessel and bring her back to Georgetown, South Carolina. Here, the Providence would rest until the end of the year. While the Providence was resting, the Americans would experience their first ship being captured. Acting on intelligence, the Cabot, a 14-gun brig, along with two other ships, spotted an enemy ship near Nova Scotia. It turned out to be the HMS Milford a 28-gun frigate. The Americans waited until morning to attack, but the Cabot would become separated from the other two ships by daybreak. 
Intense weather would cause a delay in the attack, but once the weather cleared, the Milford advanced towards the Cabot. After two days of running, Captain Onley realized the Cabot was no match and headed towards Chebog River near Yarmouth, where he would beach the ship. The Milford was so close to the Cabot that Americans had no time to destroy the ship. They just had enough time to escape with their lives, but unfortunately, the abandoned ship would be left to the British. Obviously, this wasn't an admirable moment for Captain Onley, and upon his return to Boston, a court of inquiry conducted an investigation on the loss of the Cabot. The British had their own account of what happened, and they issued a pretty condescending report that states, Only and his motley crew, including what they call a captain, two lieutenants, and a numerous party of marines, fled into the wood in the greatest hurry and confusion, carrying their small arms and ammunition, but could not spare the time and their light to set fire to their vessel, which they might have very easily have done. Only himself was the first man in the boat, having jumped into her whilst they were hoisting her out. It would take the British two weeks to get the Cabot floating again, and they sailed her to Halifax. Despite the British's accounts, the investigation would find only clear of all charges regarding the loss of the Cabot. This event caused some Americans to panic. The Milford's actions started to impact commerce in New England, and the Marine Committee reacted by sending two frigates, the Boston and the Raleigh, to take out the Milford. However, this decision was based on impulse, and it turns out that the two ships weren't even stocked or outfitted for battle. Preparations were made for the Boston, and she was up and running in a short amount of time. But the Raleigh would not be so fortunate. By the time the frigates were supposed to head out to sea on January 20th, the rally would still not be completed, and the Hancock would take her place. Both ships would experience desertions, and men on board both these vessels would constantly flee. Much like private contractors nowadays, Marines in the Revolutionary War would leave service and become a privateer. Privateers were private men, who owned a private warship, and who held a government commission. They were paid well, and service was not as demanding. Some captains went heavily into debt just trying to clothe and provide other common supplies for the marines and sailors so they wouldn't leave to become privateers. The Boston and the Hancock would remain in port for another three months until they recruited enough men for the mission. The two frigates, along with nine other privateers, left port at the end of May, but the privateers did not stay long. Six days after their departure, the privateers separated from the Navy and went their own way. The two frigates sailed for a few weeks, escorting transport ships and performing other menial tasks. On the morning of June 7th, they came across the Fox, a British 28-gun frigate. The Fox started to engage the Americans, but quickly changed their mind. They turned the ship around and started sailing away from the American Navy. The Americans started to chase the Fox. The Hancock started the chase, but the Boston was able to quickly pass the Hancock and catch up to the Fox 45 minutes later. Without putting up much of a fight, the captain of the British frigate lowered his colors and surrendered. Marines from the Boston, Lieutenant John Harris and Lieutenant Robert McNeil, boarded the Fox to take control of the ship. This caused some drama between the captains of the Hancock and the Boston. On top of their salary, 
men or their families would be given a bounty of any proceeds if they died, lost a limb, or were seriously injured. The ship commander would receive $400, marine captains $300, and everyone else $200. There was also reward for men who contributed to the capture of a ship. If a marine were first to spot a ship that would eventually be captured, he would receive double the bounty. If a marine were the first to board a ship, he would receive triple the bounty. Although the Boston was the first ship to reach the Fox, the Hancock was the first to engage and took most of the damage. The captain of the Boston reluctantly agreed that the Hancock deserved the bounty and he gave them the ship. However, the two marine lieutenants would stay on board the Fox. To compensate for their loss, William Jennison would be promoted to acting lieutenant of marines on board the Boston. With the addition of a new ship, the Navy turned south and headed towards Charleston. They planned to join up with the Randolph and set sail for the West India Fleet. However, Manley, captain of the Hancock, decided to patrol the local waters instead. The American ships sailed around, but they only came across ships that belonged to the French and the Spanish. During the middle of July, the American ships were able to capture a sloop filled with coal. The ship was tied behind the Hancock where it would tow behind the sailing fleet. A few hours later, three British ships were spotted. The Rainbow, a 44-gun troop ship, Flora, a 32-gun frigate, and the Victoria, an 18-gun brig. The enemy ships started to chase the American Navy. They sailed throughout the night, and come sunrise, the Boston was surrounded. The Flora was positioned ahead of the Boston to cut off the route while the Rainbow and the Victor sailed up to her sides. As a precaution, Manley burned their newly acquired coal ship, just in case the British won. With the coal ship on fire, Manley prepared for battle. The Flora opened fire first, hitting the Boston. Once the initial shots were fired, the Americans dispersed. The Boston headed north, the Fox east, and the Hancock south. The Rainbow immediately started to chase the Hancock. Although the Boston was a lighter ship, Manley, for some reason not known, shifted the weight of the ship forward which slowed down the vessel. At 0400 on July 8th, the Rainbow opened fire. This battle lasted about four and a half hours until Manley decided to make one last attempt at outrunning the Rainbow. The Rainbow countered with another volley of shots and chased the Hancock. After 39 hours of running, the Hancock finally surrendered to the Rainbow by lowering their colors. This was the first American frigate to lower their colors to a British ship. Amongst the prisoners who joined Captain Manley were Marine Captain Seth Baxter and Lieutenant William Boubier. The two Marine officers were transferred to Halifax, and they stayed there until the end of 1777, where they would be exchanged for other prisoners. The Fox had a similar experience with the Flora, and would eventually run ashore. Marine Lieutenants Harris and McNeil would be captured and sent to Halifax as well, but they wouldn't be released until early 1778. The Boston was able to escape by hiding in the mouth of a river. The British patiently waited for her to sail back to sea for several weeks, but the Boston stayed put. The British would slowly pull back their ships guarding the mouth of the river, and eventually, Enough ships would depart, and the Boston would be able to slowly sneak by and escape. 
She would sail slowly along the coast, hiding whenever she encountered British ships patrolling the coastline. While this was going on, tensions were rising on board the Boston. Captain McNeil, not to be confused with Marine Lieutenant McNeil, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, tried to place the blame of the failure on Marine Captain Richard Palms. On August 10th, Captain McNeil placed Captain Palms under arrest and issued a strong warning. He stated, At your peril break your arrest, in which case I shall treat you as you deserve. The next day, Captain McNeil ordered that Palms stay in the birthing area, and the only time he could leave is to use the bathroom. McNeil assigned Marine Lieutenant William Jennison to guard the prisoner, which was more than likely pretty awkward. Fortunately for Captain Palms, opinions of McNeil started to shift as soon as they arrived in Boston. Local residents and his officers on board the ship blamed McNeil for this defeat. They argued that McNeil should be held responsible. If he helped the Hancock instead of fleeing, American ships would have been spared, and they would also have captured the Flora and the Rainbow. McNeil unsuccessfully tried to push the blame onto Manley by writing a letter to the Marine Committee explaining how Manley should be responsible for the defeat. Shifting the blame to someone who wasn't there to defend himself, currently a prisoner of war, and is beloved by all his men and the locals probably wasn't the best move. McNeil also decided not to pay his officers their prize money, which added to the conflict. Captain Palms was still under arrest, and the Eastern Navy Board held a trial to hear his defense. He was being charged with the misapplication of the ship's stores, neglect of duty, disobedience of orders, and attempts to excite murmuring and mutiny among the ship's company. On November 12, 1777, Palms was transferred to Providence so his case could be heard. Apparently, Palms was very eloquent, and not only was he found innocent, but he was awarded his share of the bounty and put back into duty. Palms was transferred from the Boston to the Warren, and needless to say, this infuriated McNeil. McNeil wrote a letter to the Marine Committee ranting about the Eastern Navy Board's decision, and he stated that this decision will set precedents for behavior that would lead to a lack of discipline, honor, and honesty. The Marine Committee respectfully disagreed with McNeil and supported the decision of the Eastern Navy Board. McNeil would be forced to stand down against Palms, but he would hold a grudge against Marines. He wrote a letter stating that he disagrees with the notion of Marines on board ships, claiming they take up too much room, have little to no duty on board the ship, they are always in the way, and are prone to disagree with sea officers, which makes them hard to manage. His advice was to limit the amount of Marine officers to one and have the chaplain and surgeon receive the bounties the other two Marines would have received. McNeil even suggested a name for that one Marine he wanted on board the ship. Congress rejected all of his ideas, and the Marine Committee started to notice all of these complaints coming in about McNeil. The incoming complaints certainly didn't help McNeil's career, but the addition of his recommendation of removing Marines would be enough for the Marine Committee to request his suspension. McNeil was eventually suspended from command, and Captain Palms would head back to the Boston and resume his post of Captain of Marines. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we follow the Marines and the Navy as they fight the British again on the Delaware River. 
we'll also discuss the capture of another American vessel. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.